Welcome to the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, the show that brings you lively conversations with leaders, colleagues, and friends in healthcare, pharmacy, and beyond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast. I'm Melissa Muir Corrigan, and I'll be your host. This is episode 12 of the Melissa Rx Scripts Podcast, and thanks for listening. We're recording this episode during unprecedented times, a pandemic, along with racial injustice and social unrest. Please join me in gratitude for the frontline healthcare workers, which includes pharmacists, student pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians. I also want to express gratitude and appreciation for the many people working daily to change the world and make it a better place for all. Thank you. Well, now, on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Lynette Bradley-Baker. Lynette and I are going to be talking about many things, including her experiences as a governor-appointed member of the Maryland Board of Pharmacy. I'll give you a bit of an introduction to Lynette, and then also let her tell you about herself, her career, and her many varied experiences in life in general. Lynette Bradley-Baker is Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Engagement at the American Association of Colleges of Pharmacy, AACP, in Arlington, Virginia, and oversees many areas, including science policy and strategic engagement, membership, professional affairs, communications, and knowledge management. Dr. Bradley-Baker has held various leadership roles with the Maryland Pharmacists Association, is a past president and board member of the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy Alumni Association, and lifelong learning is part of Lynette's DNA. In 2019, she earned the ASAE Certified Association Executive Credential, CAE, and I look forward to hearing more about that. Lynette, thank you for being here with me today. Before we get into your career experiences, can you tell me a little bit more about your background, your family, where you grew up, and hey, what's a Terrapin? Sure. Thank you so much, Melissa, for the invitation. I'll start off by saying I, I grew up in Greenbelt, Maryland, which is a suburb uh, in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. I am the oldest of two children. I have a younger brother, six years my junior, who lives in Baltimore and is married with three kids, actually two young adults and a teenager. They wouldn't like me calling them kids. I went to elementary, middle, and high school with the same kids from my neighborhood. I was fortunate to know that I wanted to be a pharmacist when I grew when I graduated from high school and I completed my pharmacy school prerequisites at the University of Maryland College Park, which is where I learned more about the terrapin. A terrapin actually is a turtle with a unusual name. Um, a terrapin or diamondback terrapin is a turtle unique to the eastern shore, to the eastern and southern parts of the United States. The name was used by early Europeans to identify the turtle that, this turtle that prefers brackish swamps versus fresh water or ocean water. And terrapins are commonly found in Maryland, specifically on the eastern shore in the Chesapeake Bay region, as well as um, in that same area of Delaware. I completed my pre my pre-pharmacy studies in two years and was very fortunate to be accepted at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy, which is located in Baltimore, Maryland with the other health profession schools, such as medicine, nursing, dentistry, 
social work, public health. At that time, there was only one school of pharmacy in Maryland. Now there are three. Where I went to school, my alma mater, the, as well as the Notre Dame of Maryland University School of Pharmacy and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore School of Pharmacy, where you can find some of those terrapins. Um, I graduated from there with a BS in pharmacy. And after working in the community setting for a year, I decided to go back to graduate school and I earned my PhD in pharmacy administration. I've been very blessed to have worked in a variety of settings, including a, I've worked for a research organization, a large community retail chain, CBS, as a pharmacist, pharmacy manager, pharmacy supervisor for a group of stores in the Baltimore area, and as a pharmacy recruiter for the Maryland, D.C., Virginia, and Central Pennsylvania area. I was an assistant professor at my alma mater for two years prior to coming to AACP. And Melissa, I can tell you, I really can't believe that I'll be celebrating my 10th year at AACP in August. Um, it's been a wonderful experience working with and for all of our colleges and schools of pharmacy on practice and education issues. And being in this position really has provided me with a deeper understanding and appreciation for education, and our profession and the impactful contribution that our members have in their community and on society as a whole by preparing pharmacists to impact and improve patient care. And that patient care, as we know, can occur in a variety of different ways and many, many different settings. So that's just a little bit about me. Oh, thank you so much, Lynette. I loved hearing about your journey and you know, growing up in Maryland and on the East Coast. And you know, I had a sense that a terrapin was a turtle. I mean, having lived out there for many years, but I didn't know all those details that you shared about, you know, the the water and, and where it's found and all that. So that actually was really interesting to hear too. And congrats on upcoming 10 years with AACP. I do remember when you were hired and the excitement among the AACP team and the schools and colleges about your really interesting background and what you were going to bring to the table. And, you know, we'll talk about this this afternoon, but I think your career has just been a, um, an interesting path and you've been in that role and grown in that role during some really interesting times in healthcare. So, you know, we'll jump in and talk a little bit more about that. So as you were given your introduction, you touched on a little bit about, you know, your background. And so can you expand a little bit more? Tell me, you know, who was influential to you on your journey, on your education journey and your pharmacy journey. And I would say, you know, whether it be family, teachers, mentors, other people that had influence. Sure. And I think, Melissa, you can relate to this as I think most people can. There's been so many people and whether they have touched me professionally or personally, but I would start off by saying, I think my strongest personal influencers are my parents. Vivian and Leroy Bradley, who will be celebrating 53 years of marriage in August. Oh, that is so wonderful. It, I mean, 53 years is a long time. So. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're very, very different. If you meet them, my mother is definitely the extrovert. Um, she has never met anybody she can't talk to. <laughs> She's one of those. And, and, and my dad is very much the introvert. But they've been together for so long, and they think so much alike that oftentimes they can finish each other's sentences. So they've been more supportive to me in so many ways throughout my life. I just, you know, thank God for them every day. Um, professionally, there are so many people who've made an impact on me for a variety of reasons, um, some of which may be, you know, just the professionalism that they have. They're 
analytical skills, their knowledge and competency, their quest for learning, and as well as their ability to lead, motivate, or achieve change. Um, I can say without a doubt, I, I think my dad has been the most influential person for me professionally. He is, is also a pharmacist. He's a retired pharmacist. He graduated from the Howard University College of Pharmacy in 1967. And he never advocated for me to go to pharmacy school, but he did help me find my first job, which was in a pharmacy. And while I wanted to be the cat, I just wanted to work in the front as a cashier and, you know, work my shift. The manager actually knew my dad and put me in the pharmacy. Oh, that's interesting. So it was one of those, I think he just assumed, oh, you want to be in the pharmacy. Um, it was really there where I worked with two pharmacists who I, I'm still in contact with today, Mia Landis and Dan Simos, who showed me the impact that pharmacists can have on their community. And largely because of that experience, I just decided to go to pharmacy school. Like I said, they're, they're just tremendous pharmacists and, and really did the patient-centered care before it was a term. So uh, back to my dad, he, he's always served as an example, not just for him being a pharmacist, but him really emphasizing the importance of giving back to your profession and to your community. And even though he's been retired for more than 10 years, he's still, he is still active with the Howard University College of Pharmacy Alumni Association. He just yesterday, talk about timing, just turned over the tre his treasurership to someone else. Um, oh. Yeah, so I know it's hard for him, but it, he'll be okay because he's still going to be involved. Yeah. He's also a founding member of the Men of Our Time Incorporated, which is a social action men's club in the Washington, D.C. area. Who, and that club has been in existence since before I was born. And they raise money um, through various ways in order to support their society in general. And their most recent causes have really been around providing college scholarships for minority students. That's great. Um, I, I would say also that two other members from my dad's pharmacy class have been great influences. My godfather, who unfortunately passed away several years ago, but he owned two stores, two independent pharmacies, with his brother in Washington, D.C. And my brother's godfather, who was the best man at my parents' wedding almost 53 years ago. And then moving on to pharmacy school, certainly we, we come in contact with so many people. I, I would say if I had to just mention a few, um, my mentor, and he was actually a, a, an advisor of mine in pharmacy school, and when I went back to graduate school, he was my mentor and sat on my dissertation committee, and that's um, Dr. Robert Beersley, who just retired last year. Really just the epitome of a kind and knowledgeable person who's always there for you, no matter what, and I've called on him even up in, in recent years for some advice on things. Um, in graduate school, I had the pleasure of working with Dr. Julie Zito, who's a pharmacist and also a pharmacoepidemiologist. And she really introduced me to the world of public health and the effect that it can have um, and should have in the community. And after graduation, when I became a, a faculty member, um, Dr. Claudia Bouquet, who's a physician and researcher of health disparities and social inequities, she still works at the University of Maryland. Um, Baltimore campus in the School of Medicine, and I worked with her on a National Cancer Institute grant. And, and while I was on faculty, it's amazing, you, you really get to see people in different lights. You get to see your faculty members and, 
and the way the impact they have not only on the students but on the profession. And I would I would just point out Dr. Magali Rodriguez Sabitner, who's currently on the APHA Board of Trustees, Dr. Cynthia Boyle, Dr. Natalie Eddington, who's the current dean of the School of Pharmacy. And of course, I got to meet during my faculty years. Um, I, of course, I knew her, but I got to meet Dr. Lucinda Main, who's the AACP CEO. And certainly over the past 10 years, she has shown me a lot of good things and, and things to look out for. And just the wealth of knowledge that she has is amazing. I loved hearing that overview. And, you know, when you started and you talked about your parents being married 53 years, my parents have been married. 56 years. And I think seeing that foundation uh-huh. and that example of love and stability, I know for me and John has been, you know, really, really helpful. And then it was so interesting to hear about your influencers and the journey and how several of those people introduced you to new ideas and new concepts, whether it be public health or, you know, the Cancer Institute and the grant that I think sometimes these people come into our lives and they expose you to things. And then you're never the same. You see the world in a different way and you think about what else can I learn and how can I do more? And, you know, you and I both share Lucinda as a mentor and friend and, you know, trusted colleague. And I, I just, you know, I don't think we can say enough good things about Lucinda and her influence in leaders for generations by her quiet example, by her vulnerability, by her support and just, um, interest in doing what's best for the profession. So thank you, you know, for sharing that. I think that's very, very helpful to our listeners to to realize that, you know, in your life, you're just going to encounter numerous people along the path that are going to make such a difference. So as we were getting ready um, or, and talking about doing our call today and having you on the Melissa Rx Scripts podcast, I have to acknowledge, you know, the current times. And it's really been a difficult few weeks, very, very difficult. Um, We've had racial injustice. We've had civil unrest. And so, you know, I want to just take a moment and ask, you know, how are you doing? How are you navigating this time? And, you know, I think it's a time where we're all trying to listen and learn and grow and take action. So what's been going on and and how are you doing? Sure. Thanks, Melissa. And I appreciate your your reaching out to me even before we got on the phone just to, to check on how I was doing. I've said this quite a few to quite a few people over the past couple of weeks. And that is that I think that the the protests that have that really sparked from the killing of George Floyd by a police officer may not have happened if we didn't have the COVID-19 pandemic. And 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 I just want to couch that in terms of you know COVID-19 really caused everybody to slow down, right? It, Quite a bit for those of us who have been fortunate enough to work from home. You know, there hasn't been any travel. There hasn't been any vacations out of the area. And those that have, as you mentioned and acknowledged before, that are working to help those that are recovering from COVID-19, they even their lives have slowed down um, considerably. And so I think you know the timing. We often talk about the the right time, the right place. I think this in level of injustice that we saw through the video of George Floyd brought a lot of these things to the forefront. And and I have had a lot of time, as we all have, for reflection on my own experiences with racial injustice and racism, a lot of time for conversations 
you know, with my husband, who is a black man, with my son, who's turning 16 next week, um, with family members and friends, some of whom are in law enforcement, and as well as conversations with quite a few white colleagues, former coworkers, and others, uh, just about racism and racial injustice. And I think that while the topic and conversations regarding racism are difficult for everybody, they're difficult for white people, they're difficult for black people as well, they are the things that are gonna move us toward that action that needs to happen in order to overcome and undo those social injustices. In many cases, it can bring up a lot of painful memories for, for folks, and it, but it does give us the space to explain as a black person, the fears and anxieties um, that we face on a daily basis. And an example that I've heard spoken about quite a bit on, on TV, I've seen it on social media, many, many white people prior to this explosion of information or, or explosion of it's okay to have these conversations, many white people had not heard of the talk that black parents have with their kids. And this, I'm not referring to the birds and the bees talk, but the talk about how to interact with the police. Um, this is a talk that my husband and I started having with our son when he was 10 years old. And we've been having more of these conversations, certainly because he's gonna be driving soon. And I think the fact of the matter is that the experiences and feelings about race and racism are very different from black people. For black people, it doesn't matter how much money they have, it doesn't matter how much, what their title is, where, what car they drive, the neighborhood. I'm just very hopeful that these difficult conversations will soon not be so difficult and that the peaceful protest will lead to the active and productive actions such as exercising one's right to vote. It will lead to those actions and changes that are needed on a systemic and in some cases an individual level. You know, in speaking with um, quite a few of my colleagues, there's just a lot that's not known and, and that's okay. We all can learn together and learn from each other. So it's, while it's been a difficult couple time period, Melissa, it's left me in a very, very, very hopeful place moving forward. Well, Lynette, thank you for sharing that. And I also appreciate you sharing your personal experience and that, you know, your what your family has gone through and having the talk with your son and I definitely see you as a hopeful person. And I read an interesting article in the post um, over the weekend. I'm not sure if you saw it about a woman who was dancing with her daughter and she talked about black joy. Did you happen mm -hmm. to see that? I did see that. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Well, what I want to share with you is I think you embody black joy also. And that I have loved seeing, you know, what your son's been up to or, you know, if you have a family event with your um, husband. And I think those examples of the celebrations you've had and the love that you have are really, really important. And I have gained so much from, you know, le learning more and seeing and, you know, being a part of your story, being being part of your pharmacy family. Well, I appreciate that, Melissa. And I think those are the types of things that, you know, you and I, we know we're more alike than we're different, right? You know, yep. <laughs> we, we all want the same things. We want to be healthy, we want to be happy, we want to give our children, if we have them, or others in our family, the experiences 
and that's universal. It doesn't matter what color you are. And I think as more of these, as I said before, more of these conversations start happening and more and more people start to let each other in, they'll find out that we're more alike than we are different. Yeah. And I really do believe that. And I think you're right about having the conversations and just starting the dialogue with friends or family or whatever and realizing that that's the first step and it's usually going to be multiple conversations. So thank you, you know, again, for sharing your insights. You know, I, when I introduced you, I talked about your role on the Board of Pharmacy, and that's something that's a little bit unique and different. It's protecting the public. So can you talk, you served two terms with the Maryland Board of Pharmacy, a little bit more about what you did and um, some of the initiatives that happened during your, your service, your board service? Sure. Um, I started my term on the Maryland Board of Pharmacy when I worked for CVS as a pharmacy recruiter. And I, I'm glad that you said that the role of the board is to protect the public, because I think that there are a lot of pharmacists that are under the impression that the Board of Pharmacy, no matter what state they're in, that their role is to protect the pharmacist or the pharmacy profession. But its true mission, its, its only mission, is to protect the public's health. And I think that there are instances that the protection of the pharmacy profession and of the public health, that they do intersect when you look at things such as um, pharmacy working conditions, for example, that I know a lot of the boards of pharmacy around the country are examining, that can certainly affect the public. And, and in some cases, it can be a very negative effect on the public. The time I spent on the board, it was definitely a lot of work, a lot of meetings, but it was a great learning experience. I, I had the opportunity to serve in a chairs of various committees that the board has. I, I served as um, secretary at one point of the entire board of pharmacy. And, and it was a learning experience because a lot of things, several things that occurred in Maryland during that eight year period were new. So for example, pharmacy technician registration started in Maryland during my tenure. So to be able to be involved in the formation of those regulations and everything from, you know, the basic concept, yes, it's going to happen, working on the application that the technicians would have to complete. It's, it's phenomenal the amount of work that goes into those types of things. Um, in addition, during my tenure, drug therapy management collaborations or collaborative practice agreements between physicians and pharmacists in Maryland definitely evolved. We started, when I, when I first started on the board, it was very difficult to get a collaborative practice agreement approved because it had to be approved by both the, the Board of Pharmacy and the Board of Physicians. And at that time, we had quite a few members of the Board of Physicians who did not want to see these types of agreements move forward. But over time, it has gotten better. I don't think it's exactly where some other states may be, but it's definitely um, much more collaborative and, and the process is better. To, to get those approved than they were in the past. But my opportunity on the board also allowed me to not only learn about other areas of pharmacy practice that I wasn't as familiar with, but it also gave me the opportunity to um, be able to impart some information and education um, to those on the board staff and those members of the board about education, about aspects of the profession maybe that they weren't as familiar with such as the accreditation standards for colleges and schools of pharmacy, how interprofessional education plays a role in pharmacy practice and in patient-centered care. 
I mean, it also allowed me to further develop my communication and leadership skills because we often had to interact with many diverse audiences from lawyers who would come in with, with the pharmacist during a case resolution hearing or a full, full blown hearing to pharmacists who would come before us, um, pharmacists who would communicate different questions to the board for clarification, pharmacy technicians and other health profession boards as well. So I, I would, even though it is a lot of work, I would, I always encourage those pharmacists who are interested even remotely about becoming a board member to actively pursue that. And I'm, all boards of pharmacy have public meetings or some kind of way that you can interact with the board um, during the normal course of their business. And that's a good way to sort of learn about um, the nuances or the procedures that they may have as an individual board. But it is a, it's an awesome experience um, that I, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Boy, you did such a nice job describing, you know, your experience. And I would echo, I spent a lot of time with the state boards of pharmacy when I was leading PTCB in DC and, you know, did a lot of travel for hearings and provided testimony. And the role and function of the board of pharmacy is different, as we talked about with protecting the public, but it's such a mission critical and so important role. And when you talked about starting something with the technician registration, I get that for sure. You know, right. the right. and then, you know, how do you figure out technology? How do you automate? Um, how do you bring everyone under the fold? And so, you know, I would also encourage our listeners, if you haven't been involved at the state level, um, to seek that opportunity. And then also with the National Associations of Boards of Pharmacy, they have a new leader. Um, Al Carter has recently assumed the role of executive director following Carmen Catazone, who was in place for numerous years. I worked with him for many years. So there's just some really cool things going on. And, you know, we've seen a lot of that in the COVID timeframe related to the regulations and the importance of the boards of pharmacy as we're looking at access for patients and, you know, what that could look like. Look like. So um, thank you, you know, for sharing that. I think you helped to kind of explain it so that people could say, oh, that might be something I'm interested in if they, you know, hadn't had any experience before. Well, another thing in your long career at AACP, you've been involved in various initiatives. And one of those is the Lawrence C. Weaver Transformative Community Service Award. So can you tell us a little bit more about what does this award recognize and why do you think it's so important in today's world and so important for our student pharmacists? Sure. So the Lawrence C. Weaver Transformative Community Service Award was named after Lawrence Weaver. And I know, Melissa, you had the pleasure of knowing him. I did not, but I've heard nothing but great things about what he, his long career and how in his later years, he really was dedicated to the orphan drugs and, and pairing that up, um, making sure people had access to open orphan drugs that had rare diseases. And that was one of the reasons why this award, since I've been at AACP, has been named after him because it recognizes the level of the engagement and the level of impact that a college or school of pharmacy has with their community. And when we say community, it could be their local, state, national, and internet or international communities. And for all of the winners, uh, past winners of this award, they definitely have had an impact from everywhere from local to international. I've been a member of the AACP staff site team that visits the finalists for this award for the past nine years. 
And we use a rubric with elements based on the various tenets of the award to individually evaluate each school. And then once all the school visits are completed, we meet as a group to determine the winner. And I can totally say that through all nine years, not only the winners, but the finalists for this award are truly part of their community. And I'm not just talking in terms of the health-oriented aspects that they may provide to the community, but others that other areas that can and does influence health, such as social determinants of health, working, you know, looking at transportation issues and education issues and access to food. I, I remember we had a finalist that um, worked with the meal, the student pharmacist worked with the Meals on Wheels. So, you know, it's it's just a broad array and it's it's really fascinating how these schools have made an impact, not just made an impact, but are considered part of the community. All of the visits have a session with the school's community partners, and I'm often struck as to the impact that that school has had. I have witnessed some of these community partners actually start to cry because as they talk about the role that the college or school of pharmacy has had with their organization. Oftentimes, they say that, that they would not be able to provide a continuous level of services or in or even any services would it not be possible for the school or college of pharmacy with the last set of um finalists that we have actually one of the community partners said that their particular organization had been transformed for the better because of the involvement of the college of pharmacy so i can honestly say that this level of engagement is more than just outreach to the community is more than just providing a a health fair, not saying that there's nothing wrong with the health fair, but it's more than just outreach. It's actually a part of the culture of the college or school. And it's often demonstrated, you definitely see it from the dean, from the CEO deans and their administration, their level of commitment to the faculty and staff, and certainly the student pharmacists. I think one of the unwritten goals for this award is that the student pharmacists who become part of this culture during their years in school will pay it forward and be a part of their community once they're in practice in an area that they're passionate about. I think an award like this and everything that it represents is a vital piece of making our communities address its needs while also creating and deepening the trust and compassion that needs to, to come forth from all segments of the community. Sometimes, you know, schools of pharmacy, just like all higher education entities are seen as this ivory tower at the top of the hill. But the thing that that ivory tower has is people. Yep. And you have the community partners are organizations who are run by people and, and they're working for the people in their community. And then you have, of course, the common denominator, the people that are being helped or being transformed or being assisted. And so the common denominator is people. And, and I think that really is in the time that we're living in and moving forward, we, we have to learn how to work with each other so we can build that trust and continue to advance and meet the needs of those in our community. You know, there were so many interesting threads that you just talked about um, that you've honored. AACP has honored Larry Weaver um, by naming this award after him and the focus that he had on innovation, but he for sure was one who paid it forward. So 
I loved hearing, and you know, I'm a beneficiary of that with being a Weaver medalist from Drake, but I loved hearing about then the students are encouraged to pay it forward and then there's paying it forward within the community. And I also like this holistic approach that you discussed with the social determinants of health. And I think it's been so important from a public health standpoint and healthcare in general standpoint that we're moving beyond just how things had traditionally been, you know, related to, well, there's a pill for that or there's surgery for that, or, you know, we'll take care of it in this way, realizing that uh, the socioeconomic factors at play, whether someone has transportation or not, uh, whether they live in a food desert. I mean, there's so many pieces. And I think for AACP to recognize the schools and the colleges that have this level of engagement and then have real world examples, that's just so exciting. And I look forward to doing a deeper dive. And I think what we'll do after the podcast is we'll link uh, in the show notes um, a little bit more about these award winners, because I think there's so many things that we all can learn from them. Absolutely. And I think one of, no matter where you, where I have gone, the student pharmacist, because we have a session with just the students as well. And they often say, you know, it's one thing to read about social determinants of health and to understand the concepts. It's another to actually interact with those agencies that are there to help people um, that are having those issues that where, you know, people do have to choose between keeping the light lights on and getting their medication filled. And so the, the things that they said that how they themselves are transformed through their experiences, whether it's through, you know, an IPI or an API or they're volunteering at the student run clinic or whatever the case may be, there's nothing like actually being face to face with a person and trying to help them with it. And it's given them just more appreciation for the blessings that they have. And also what, you know, more, giving them more appreciation for what they can do and what they should be doing as a professional once they get into practice. Yeah. Like seeing that bigger picture. Absolutely. And that there's things going on that they may not have been aware of for sure. So, you know, as we were talking, we highlighted before um, experiences that were joy. And I know one of those joyful moments in your life was receiving the ASAE Certified Association Executive Credential. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that, what that means? And then I know last summer you had the experience, we're not doing that this summer, but you were able to walk across the stage at the ASAE annual meeting. So tell us a little bit more about all that. Sure, thanks. The Certified Association Executive or CAE credential is one that can be earned by a committed association professional who has demonstrated the wide range of knowledge essential to managing an association. Um, I first learned about this credential when I started at AACP and decided a few years ago that I wanted to pursue it as I knew that I wanted and planned to stay in association management for the foreseeable future. So in order to earn a CAE, it's just like any other exam, there's certain things that you have to, any other credential, I should say, there's certain things that you have to do. Um, for this particular one, you have to earn 100 hours of credit in various areas pertaining to association management, and then you have to take and pass the CAE exam, which is a four-hour exam with 200 multiple-choice questions that's offered only twice a year. So it's sort of like when I took the NAPLEX when I graduated way long, long time ago. It was only offered on a certain day and, and, and that type of thing. Now, I can tell you that since the pandemic has happened, um, ASAE, which is the organization that 
administers um, the CAE exam, they have made it a, a virtual exam now, which is great. But this is an exam, Alyssa, that when I took it, it was, um, we actually had to use Scantron sheets. If you can remember. Okay. <laughs> so um, it was very different. And, you know, after I earned the hours to sit for the exam, I actually took a review course that reviewed and solidified my understanding of the nine knowledge domains that are part of the examination. So it's everything that you would probably think you would need in order to run an association. So things such as strategic management and membership development and public policy, et cetera. So I took the exam last May and I found out I passed in June. And I can tell you it was the best feeling in the world to find out that I passed because I had run into so many people that unfortunately didn't pass their first time. And in fact, in the review course that I took, there was someone who was actually preparing to take it for the third time. And I, you know, it does mean a tremendous amount. It did in terms of when I did get to pass to along with the other um, folks that earned their CAE the, that year got the opportunity to be part of the ASAE celebration at their meeting last August in Columbia. It was really an awesome experience to have my name called and walk across the stage in front of thousands of people to receive my CAE lapel pin and um, congratulations from the ASAE leadership. So I really do akin it to a similar feeling that I had when I found out I passed my exams to be a licensed pharmacist. But I think this one, it was slightly on a higher level because this, this credential is a significant contribution to my continuing as professional development and growth, and it'll be invaluable in the future. Well, thank you for sharing that. I appreciate, you know, that you went, you did an overview of the process and I think outlined the steps. And also, you know, on these podcasts, we've talked about your experience too, and congrats that you passed it on the first time, but I think your reflection of being in the course with people who needed to take it more than once, you know, that that's also a part of life and that sometimes it doesn't happen the first time. And so I think there's always key learnings when you have that kind of situation too. Well, um, I am so thrilled that you and I have been able to spend time together this afternoon and reconnect and catch up. And so one of the things that I typically ask all of my guests is, you know, while I have you, is there one prescription or a life lesson you'd like to share with others in the spirit of Melissa Rx scripts? Sure. I, I think if there was one that I had to describe or express, um, one prescription for life that I try to have for my myself and this is, again, highly influenced by my parents and how they interact with one another and others. It's really comprised of three areas that I think are pretty much interrelated. I always try to have an open mind, be willing to learn new things, and to actively listen. I believe that being open to new ideas and new perspectives, new processes, new people, new cultures can only help to influence our lives. And regardless of the situation, whether it's personal or professional, it is often helpful to not only have an open mind, but, we, but be willing to learn new things and new ways of dealing with situations, new ways of interacting with others. We're not all alike. We're, we all are different. And sometimes you might have to come at things in a different way to connect with someone. And finally, active listening. Listening is hard, Melissa. It is hard because sometimes, you know, if we think we have the answer, we want to spout it out. 
Um, but but active listening is a true skill, and I have learned as going throughout my career is that it is one that oftentimes assists us in growing truly truly appreciating others' perspectives, experiences, and ideas. So that that's my thing. It's not one thing. It's, it's three things, but they it's really talking about the same thing, and that's really being open to new things. Don't think that you always have the answer to everything because there might be a different way of doing it. And um, again, that's just something I've, I've become more sensitive to and more appreciative of um, just as I continue my professional journey. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think your insights and your reflections are so valuable, especially in the time that we're in right now. You know, if you think about the last few months with the pandemic and the stay home orders, how having an open mind and realizing that you need to listen and learn because everything was different. And, you know, my sense as we navigate, um, as things open back up and as we move into the next phase, whatever that is, and we're kind of in the middle of it. So it's a little bit hard to say, we're going to be learning new things. We're going to be growing in new ways. We're going to be, um, I think continuing with a lot of technology, a lot more things are going to be virtual. You know, some of the things that we did physically together, we're going to be socially distanced at best and maybe um, separate as some of the stuff continues. So thank you. Those insights, those three things, I think is something we can all take to heart and, you know, figure out what that means for us and what that could look like. Well, I just want to say thank you. I'm so grateful you and I reconnected the last couple of years and that you were able to spend time with me today on the Melissa Rx Scripts podcast. And to everyone listening, if you can subscribe to our show, and follow me, Melissa Muir Corrigan, on social media. I also want to give a special shout out to our producer, Kate Cruz, with Executive Podcast Solutions, who helps us make the magic happen. And I hope everyone has a great day. And thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Melissa.